Storymakers. I'm Angie Powers. I'm Elizabeth Stark. And this is Storymakers Show. And we are thrilled to be here with Divi Lascar, who is a poet and novelist. And I'll just read her bio here. <laughs> She's also. And where are you getting that bio? I'm getting the bio from the back of her brand new chapbook of poems called Gas and Food, No Logic. Poems by Debbie S. Lascar, who is a poet who deserves a wider readership. Although <laughs> that's right, that's what Patricia Jones said about her. I was like, that's a great way to start the bio. <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna take that for my bio from now on. <laughs> that was one of her amazing blurbs by the amazing Patricia Spears Jones. But her bio is actually this. <laughs> Debbie S. Lass. In fact, I'm like, you read it. You read it. All right. Will you stop Take whipping two. me with your hair, though? <laughs> no. All right. Bringing in the uh, <coughs> eyes of growing age. All right. So Debbie S. Lascar is a native of Chapel Hill, North Carolina. She holds an MFA from Columbia University <gasps> in New York. Amazing. An MA in South Asian Studies from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champlain. And a BA in Journalism and English from UNC Chapel Hill. She is a former journalist covering crime and government, which are now becoming nearly <laughs> the same. <laughs> For daily newspapers. She is also a photographer. One photograph was featured on the cover of the Florida Review. Her poems have appeared in numerous journals, including, but not limited to, <laughs> The Raleigh Voice, which uh, nominated her for Best New Poet 2016. She is an alumna of both the uh, Op Ed Project and Vona Slash Voices, and recently won first prize in a poetry in poetry oh my god this is what happens when I don't have my glasses on <laughs> won first prize in poetry at the 27th Mendocino Coast Writers Conference Contest she now lives in California but remains a diehard Tar Heel basketball fan <laughs> okay and here are some more words <laughs> but these ones are going to be so much easier to read Ms. Lascar's poetry explores the question of identity and race and what it means to be in exile in your own country. She writes of the politics of race and gender and not belonging in both the deep south of the United States, where she was born and raised, and in India, where she spent many summers as a child and adolescent visiting her extended family. Welcome, Devi. Thank you. I feel like I should just add that I also lived on your couch for like a year one time when we were young and graduate schooly. <laughs> yes. So, you know. The good old days when we didn't have any kids. Yes. We were like staying out late. Even me. <laughs> Nine to ten o'clock sometimes. I know. I, I, like one in the morning, man. Because New York bars like shut down at three, right? Or four or something crazy. Not that we were hanging out in bars. We were hanging out right. But, but. The, here's the secret for me is that one o'clock in the morning, New York time is still 10 p.m. California time. Yes. yes. And she definitely adhered to California time. Yes. But that allowed me to be a late night person. Anyway, I am so excited to have you here. And I'm so, so excited about your new chapbook. Thank you. Um, how does it feel? Oh, wait, we're not going there yet. <laughs> Hold that thought. We're going to talk more. <laughs> this is what a professional interview sounds like. <laughs> so, we want to get you warmed up for Terry Gross, right? She's a lot like this. Yeah. 
Um, but we, we start with what we're working on. And, and Angie, what are you working on? I am still working on the movie. <laughs> and I have a feeling that for the next six or seven to 25 episodes, I will be able to be very concise. I'm still working on the movie. <laughs> and um, learning a lot about the areas of filmmaking that are not my forte. That's good. That's good. <laughs> be on your creative edge there. Or organizational edge. <laughs> <laughs> and I am on page 50 of reading and editing my manuscript. And um, I just didn't get to do anything today because it's my big teaching work day. So who knows what's it's going. It's going wild while I'm away. But uh, Debbie, what are you working on right now? <laughs> I am working on um, your movie. Yeah. <laughs> what a coincidence. We'll be consistently talking about that for the next <laughs> several <laughs> of your episodes. <laughs> and so, the other thing I'm working on is uh, I just uh, submitted uh, my full length manuscript, Paint by Number. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a, a book of poems. And so I'm uh, crossing my fingers and hoping for the best. And I'm also uh, just finishing up my novel and um, that has a very similar theme to my chapbook. And I am sending out query letters today and tomorrow. Congratulations. That's super exciting. Unless anybody think that chapbook means like a few pieces of paper stapled together, like this is a full on book. I mean, it doesn't ruin your debut status for your fuller full on book, but this is, this is a gorgeous book. Thank you. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty proud of it. Um, I, um, I'm also, uh, as you pointed out, I'm a photographer and, um, I've discovered this wonderful, app um on on uh on my phone uh it's called waterlog and it takes the photographs that you take and it turns them into art Mm -hmm. and so my um my cover is actually my own art and um it is of a gas station in los angeles that's so great i love the geometry of it Mm -hmm. yeah it's beautiful Thanks. So let's talk about, since this is Storymaker Show, let's talk about the aspects of storytelling that may or may not be involved in putting together and ordering a, a collection like this. Sure. Is there, I mean, are you thinking story at all in the in the individual poems or in the group? Yes. Um, so uh, there are two kinds of poets. Um, I firmly fall into the first category, which is a narrative poet which means I tell stories in my poems. And then there's something called a language poet, which is kind of ironic since a narrative poet also uses language. But what they're trying to say is that a language poet uh, talks about mostly their sounds and their leaps are more, the leaps that they take in the poem are more, um, uh, I guess, uh, without the scaffolding of... Reason? Uh, <laughs> Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and then sometimes, it, you know, like some there are some really great sound poets like um, Kathy Park Hong, you know, like they're they're really amazing poets. And so you're like, wow, you know, I can't do that. I actually end up telling a story, even if it's a very short story with pretty much every poem I write. And so so I had to really choose, you know, um, which poems I was going to put 
with this set and how they were going to fit so that it wasn't using the same beat mm-hmm. uh, over and over again. And so it was changing it up. And then, then there's that whole big question of form, you know, um, so I tend to write free verse, but then sometimes I write something like a Sistina or a Pantoum and which by the way, Elizabeth Stark introduced me to in 1994. <laughs> How prescient of me. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, you know, and that's, really interesting too because um you that is sort of my way of playing with it and having fun but I'm still trying to tell a story and so um sometimes it's it's when you give yourself these little challenges that's when that's when the magic happens so constraint yeah creativity with well yeah you know it's sort of funny people often talk oh the three x structure like oh first of all yeah that's restraining and then second of all like no, and I've said this before, no one ever is like, you know, all of Shakespeare's sonnets like sound the same. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like no one's ever like, oh God, and you just know that last couplet's coming. Right? You know? You just you don't hear that. So <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And Emily Dickinson, right? Like she wrote she wrote her for her it's her form and she wrote a thousand and seven you know, one thousand seven hundred and something of them and yet none of them are the same you yeah. know except in form you know so, so talk a little bit about your process so you i mean do you do you think okay i'll write a pantoum do you i mean what, what is your writing process for poetry so my writing process is it's sort of like the garbage disposal method it's sort of like i just throw everything in to the sink and then I turn up on the garbage disposal, and then what comes shooting out <laughs> is what ends up being my poem. <laughs> but uh, you know, joking aside, I do. Um, I tend to just kind of write uh, without line breaks or thought to the form first, and then as I'm going back through and picking out the lines that I like, then I'm like, okay, well, if I can use this line twice, mm-hmm. and if I find like five or six lines that I know I can use twice, then I'll try for a pantoum. But if I know that it's just not going to work, you know, then I'll just try and write it like in couplet form. Often I find that I try, um, I I can write long. So I try to say, oh, I'm going to only write a sonnet, which is 14 lines. And, um, and, uh, uh, my uh, my teacher and my mentor Molly Fisk is the um, big advocate and proponent of the uh, rogue sonnet, which is the American sonnet is called the rogue sonnet because we tend not to uh, rhyme like the Brits. <laughs> <laughs> We're like we like a little bit of definition, but don't box me in. <laughs> yes. Don't ask me too much. What is the form, you know, the, uh, it's the art of losing. What's that mm. one? Elizabeth Bishop's The Art of Losing. The Art of Losing isn't hard to master. Right. I don't know. And it's that form. It's also the guy who's like, do not go gently into that good night. It's the oh, same form. That I'm trying to Dylan Thomas. Right. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And I'm trying to remember that form because, again, you're using the first line in the as the third or what you know what I mean there's yeah and that's a sestina I believe and so that's um and that has a very strict you have to adhere very strictly to 
to, to actually get to call it a sestina. So it has this way of repeating the lines and repeating the last words of the lines. Mm-hmm. And there's a set formula and you really have to follow it. So I will tell you that after 20 years of trying, I finally wrote my first successful sestina in 2013. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Hard form, huh? Yeah, it's really hard. Like, uh, I think one of the reasons why Elizabeth Bishops is so widely anthologized is because that's one of the few ones that, I mean, it really, truly works. And you look at it and you like, you study it for a while and you think, okay, I can do this. (laughs) And then (laughs) I'm like, she did it. And it looks so easy when she's, you know, when you read it and and then you start to do it and you cry and then you ball up your piece of paper and pretty soon, you know, you have of, uh, you know, you've got a whole ream of paper that's balled up at your feet and you don't have a sestina. (laughs) I I think that's one of the hallmarks of sort of amazing art on some level is that it's accessible and it tricks you into thinking you could do it. That's my favorite thing. I forget (laughs) who said it, but my favorite thing about is like, is modern art equals I could do that plus yeah but you didn't <laughs> yes right right like my daughter saw uh, a Mark Rothko painting not too long ago and she was like I can totally do that and I'm like actually no no you can't and she was like no no I really can do that and I'm like actually no <laughs> like I've tried and I've painted a lot longer than you and no no you really can't yeah. <laughs> so which brings us to the poems that are not formal Right. And how do you, I mean, I wasn't, I think it was Robert Frost who said sort of what free versus like playing without, playing tennis without a net or something. So how how do you do that? How do you play tennis without a net? How do you know when that poem is done? So, you know, um, I think you once told me uh, about, and I'm not sure, maybe you can tell me who said it, that, you know, not all uh, works are uh, finished. They're all only just abandoned. Yeah, no, I don't know who said that. A work of art is never finished, merely abandoned. Right, right. So, um, So I could probably rework every one of the poems that's actually in my chapbook right now. And, but I just... Um, sometimes very, very infrequently, I just know, you know, I'm like, oh, that one's done. Um, most of the time I'm like, I'm kind of playing with it. I put it away for a while, at least a month. And then I come back usually, and then I can really see what's wrong with it. And then, then the, after like the third time of, you know, Xing stuff out, I can be like, okay, I'll live with it. I can live with this version and then I won't need it. I won't need to fix it again for a while. Um, I know, for example, uh, I submitted this manuscript to finishing line and then they accepted it and then they gave me some time to work on it. And so I have to say in those, you know, I guess a month and a half, I, in those weeks, I was, I think I reworked Every single poem hated what I did to it and then went pretty much back to the beginning of what it used to look like and made some very small changes. But it was a process of me really writing more and then taking it, most of it back out. Interesting. Well, you know, it's, we're going to be talking with a group of people this weekend, right? About revision. We're teaching a revision class. And one of the things that I think is sort of interesting in what you were just talking about is I always assume that in order to revise, you kind of have to have something 
towards which you are revising. And, um, you know, so it's interesting because we also know it's such a crazy process. Revision, you know, you have a vision and then you, oh, here's a better vision. Oh, here's a better, oh, no, that's a bad vision. Bad, bad. Um, right. And um, so I was just sort of interested. Especially if you're Eddie Izzard, then that's how you sound while you're doing that. Jeezy, crazy. Don't do <laughs> Jeezy. Anyway, um, so look, I just got derailed. But the question I have is, <laughs> so there's also this notion that if I had more time, this would be a shorter letter, right? There's that. And so when you're working on something, the size of many of your poems are fit on a page. And so since you do both, I do, what are sort of the things that you find different do you revise more the shorter items? Do you, you know, how would you separate out the processes you use for something like a novel length work versus a page length, but very differently languaged kind of work? Right. Um, so I, it's very different. Um, so when I have my poet hat on, um, I am really um, working on, on the level of the line. You know, if that line doesn't sound right, I'll just stay there for a long time until it's right. You know, um, for the for the novel or the short story, then I'm sort of like, well, that doesn't work right there, but I'm going to keep going. And then maybe I'll find a home for it somewhere else. Right. So, for example, um, today in class, you know, um, I had submitted a like a 500 word um, excerpt of my novel. And it was pointed out to me, rightly so, that the backstory was at the beginning and it needed to be like closer towards the end, right? And um, it's stuff like that, that, you know, you can look at a bigger piece and kind of fit it in. I have had the occasional experience where a teacher during a workshop has looked at my poem and kind of laughed and then said, you wrote it backwards. And so then mm. they ordered my poem by using the last line first and mm. going, up and um that's happened a couple of times and that's um but that's rare but it's also really fun like oh i wrote the lead last you know and <laughs> it is not a journalistic thing to do <laughs> it's not a journalistic burying the lead okay that, i have to say burying the lead it's got to be one of your collections somewhere in there. <laughs> somewhere yeah, i think so maybe it's your play or something <laughs> i really want to um one day write a poem uh a uh, or a group of poems about um, all the different strange stories I had to go cover. Um, yeah. Yeah, I've had a few. Um, the one I didn't get to cover is probably the one um, that I want to start with. It's uh, a few months after I left the Honolulu Star Bulletin. I was actually in New York with you. <laughs> and um, one day, um, this elephant ran away from the circus and marched down Capulani Boulevard, which is a big street in Honolulu. And um, all of mine, then there were no cell phones or, um, or texting back then, but uh, all of my, um, all of my pals from the newsroom called me that night. And, um, and, <laughs> and they were like, you could have been here covering the elephant running down Capulani Boulevard, but no. <laughs> and so I was very sad. The <laughs> elephant was like, I'm so tired of being the elephant in the living room. I'm going to run, <laughs> run down the street. Let's talk about journalism for a minute because 
you're finding the story, right? So can you talk, is there anything in, in the kind of act of finding the story in journalism that has parallels to finding the story in fiction or poetry? Um, well, I, I mean, you're finding like, you know, the inciting incident, right? And so you just keep finding that over and over again. I, so I think like as a writer, um, when I am not, when you, when I'm doing my journalism work, you know, it's pretty easy and that's just from years of experience of, oh, well, this is what the story's about. You know, this is this is the thing that sparked the story, right? Like someone has died or something has caught on fire and, you know, and <laughs> something has been stolen. You know, that's that's something has been stolen and caught on fire. <laughs> the combinations are pretty endless, actually. And then but when you're um, so. So when you're looking at a story or looking at a poem, you're like, well, what is what is the thing that's sparking the 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 actual story? So in poetry, um, you know, um, our teacher Lucille Clifton used to say that there's the thing that sparks the poem, and then there is the poem that you don't write when you write the poem that you do write. And so that's called a shadow poem. Mm. And I find that like the thing that sparks the poem that necessarily does not lend itself to staying in the poem. I once wrote a poem about people changing their names to sound more American. But the thing that sparked me was this lovely um, old man from Italy who, um, you know, came to this country at the ripe old age of 80, you know, and changed his name. But obviously that wasn't going to fit in my poem about Indian women having to change their name in order to be accepted in the American workplace, right? And so that's that's really... Um, and so that was my shadow poem was this lovely old man who I really wanted to include, but I couldn't figure out how, right. And so I ended up having to kind of, that had to be my shadow poem. And then the poem itself was quite different. Yeah. That's amazing. But it sounds like your shadow poems might be really fun at cocktail parties. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, it's just like, I don't know what to say, but I've got all these shadow poems. So they're just going to be, how are you? I am fine. Shall I tell you about an old man from Italy? <laughs> and, and then, because that was such a sweet story, right? And to think about those things that launch creative processes and thinking. And uh, also, I see him like off in a room somewhere with these Indian women. <laughs> Kind of, you know, like like an, an Ellis Island, whatever the contemporary, like Ellis Island romance. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, so if you you have this process for for writing large and then finding the poem, shaping the poem, how how about with your prose? So, with my prose, I don't think my problem is starting the story. I think my problem. And I don't think my problem is ending the story. I think my problem is the the waste, you know, the middle. And, um, you know, I tend to, um, it's either feast or famine there. So I either have way too much and, or I conversely, uh, it's starving, you know, and I don't know what to do to kind of bridge the really good beginning that I think I have and the really good ending that I think I have, right? And, um, and I think I, I, I will be struggling with that 
every time because I seem to be struggling with that every time I write something, you know, like I start off pretty strong. I know where it's supposed to go. I get there. The beginning's okay. The ending's okay. But then the middle, I'm just looking at it and I'm like, there's something wrong here. And I, maybe it's just a a problem with me processing what to do in the middle, but I still don't quite get it. But maybe you're just really efficient. Like maybe you're just like for the short ones, you're just sort of like, well, I know where I'm going. Right. So I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to go through all that long winding middle. Yes. But I mean, I, interestingly enough, I'm always, I'm always interested in the middle parts of things because, you know, there are also those studies that show we remember the beginning and we remember the end and often forget the middles of things. And, um, and it's just sort of interesting uh, to think about that because if you took that same skill set and you said, okay, here's my beginning, here's my end. Okay, now I'm going to cut my middle up and here's my beginning and here's my end. And then I'm uh, cut it again and here's the middle. You know, and just kind of make your beginnings and ends since they are strong and comfortable all, all the way in. through. <laughs> That's brilliant. <laughs> you do that I'll watch <laughs> I do that all the time <laughs> so you ha- you have a few uh, like daily practices Debbie like you've been doing this art a day practice can you can right. you tell everybody what the art a day practice is sure um, so basically every day I post a picture that I've taken or a piece of art that I've done um that day have you done it that it was in the beginning the first two years that i did it it had to be that day now it's a little bit more lax it is something that i've taken or done not necessarily that day um so basically it started in um 2011 uh at that point um i had been with uh my work for about a year um i uh as as you know um uh there's a long saga there, but I don't have the bulk of my work anymore. And I don't have my laptop that has um, the most of my work on it. And so, um, so I was uh, kind of floundering about a year after I lost all my work and wondering what to do. And, um, uh, a friend of mine from Atlanta, uh, uh, told me about this artist friend of hers who had been doing a little painting a day for a year. So it was a 365 challenge. And then I saw um, Julie and Julia, the uh, movie with Meryl Streep and Amy Adams. And, and so I was like, Oh, look, she cooked out of that cookbook every day for a year. And this lady can paint every day for a year. I'm like, I can take a, picture every day for a year and the constraint I gave myself was in the beginning I was doing art so the constraint was I had to have done the art that day and then I could post it and or and then I after I moved to California um my art supplies sort of you know got got shoved into a box and so I kind of I kind of moved into more of a photography mode and then since then, I I make sure I post something every day, um, and I have done it since June twenty third, twenty eleven, and um, uh, it has helped because in the beginning I didn't have anything, and so the 
titles of the poem, uh, the pictures were my poems, you know, like they were, they were a line or two or a line or something, you know, and so that's how I kept my poetry going when I wasn't really able to write very much. And then, you know, I'm a visual learner, like a lot of people. And so, you know, I could take a picture and play with it and post it and then go back and look at it and then be like, oh, well, this reminds me of this. And then that would start a poem. And so because of that practice, it's A, kept me a little bit on the disciplined side, right? Because there's no time to waste on pity, um, especially self-pity. But also it's just really helped me like look at something um, that is visual and kind of translate it into something that's maybe more a, a different sense. Mm. Yeah. Uh, it puts me in my, the guy Cleon who does steel, oh, yeah. like an artist, he does like oh. Instagrams where he takes pictures of text where he's marked out and he yeah. poems out of the, uh, oh, that's cool. Yeah. Yeah. Erasure yeah. poems. Um, yeah. Two of those too. And they are so much fun. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, and, and he's actually, uh, you know, he has a whole book series out that like still like an artist, right? You know, I love those. yeah, and they're fantastic. They give you tons of ideas, you know, how to steal. And I've stolen from him, you know, <laughs> so, <laughs> so yeah. Now, and now you've also at times, I know, done a poem a day. I know you did one for Tupelo, I think. And sometimes right. you do Molly's kind of marathons. Right. How is that discipline? So that's really hard. Like the first time I did that, I I was sweating buckets because you're just really fixated on, oh my gosh, I have to get something out. And, you know, I am, like many people, a recovering perfectionist. Mm -hmm. So it's really hard for me to post something that I know isn't ready you know, to be seen. Now, when I do it with Molly's boot camp, it's in a private setting. And so the only other people seeing it are the 20 other fools who are doing it with me. <laughs> but, um, but, you know, for Tupelo, we were doing, a, it was a fundraiser, you know, so we were raising money for Tupelo. And so we all had to do, a, you know, there was nine of us and we had to do a good job. And so there was a lot of pressure. I, as a reporter, really love the deadline. So I didn't have as much trouble, I think, um, as, and I had done the, I had done Molly's camps before and her marathons before. So I had some idea kind of, but I have to say that that one really, cause it was public and I had to, I just had to really step it up. It really helped in terms of making me like more accountable for my work and not just mm-hmm. putting on the page for the sake of doing it but I was sweating bullets you know especially like on day 29 and you know it's a 30-30 project I did it in December which means he gave us the 31st off but um but I you know on day 29 I was like I can't write another word you know and then I remember I actually remember the last poem I wrote for them which is um um he had talked about, um, uh, I had just been to one of the Tupelo conferences and the, uh, the professor, uh, talked about, uh, writing something, um, in the form of, uh, ecstatic, you know, like 
a like a ode or something happy. And so um, I wrote about how unhappy I was that I had to write an ecstatic poem. <laughs> and, um, and I have to say that was like one of the only days where he liked my poem. <laughs> Did he tell you if he liked your poem or not? Nope. Didn't say a word the whole month, but liked my poem that day. So. Uh, liked it. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> So let's talk about exploring questions of identity and race and what it means to be in exile in your own country. And um, let's talk about two things. Just nice, light, easy, whatever you got off the top of your head. Speaking of ecstatic. (laughs) But, you know, two things. So one is this shift that you made from the deep South to California. And then, and then the shift that our country made (laughs) because you left the South. (laughs) all me all my fault (laughs) yeah so uh thoughts on uh on these shifts on this exile so you know um i uh i i still am a pretty proud southerner um i do count myself as a southerner i was born and raised in north carolina i spent the bulk of my existence in the south um I, you know, my children were all born in Atlanta. Uh, They're all, you know, Georgia natives and um, grit eating Southerners, grit eating Southern girls, you know, Um, uh, (laughs) not like grit. It's not grit. It's grits. Grits with an S. Yeah. (laughs) Grit eating is a whole different thing. It's like you haven't washed the lettuce well enough. But anyway. (laughs) Kiss my. All right. Exactly. (laughs) So two things happened. Um, The stuff happened with my family uh, back in 2010 and where my husband was racially profiled. And um, he was an academic. And we... um, we, you know, we kind of hung tough, we hung tough for about two years and then we moved, um, when it became really clear that staying there wasn't going to help, you know, um, the situation for us. And then in terms of the country, you know, there was the moment where, uh, you know, our current, um, I won't use that word, uh, our Current <laughs> the Muppet representing the office of formerly, formerly known the, as the yeah. president of the yes. United States. Right. Well, actually, that disparages Muppets. So, <laughs> yeah, with the book. You know, when when the election results came in, and then when Obama left office, those three months, right? And I have to say, I was triggered every day. Because um, the irony of all of that was that the day before the election uh, was the day that basically uh, all the charges against my husband were dismissed and we were free. And so um, I distinctly remember feeling this sense of relief and thinking, okay, we're free and Hillary's going to win tomorrow and we're all good. It's all good. I can relax. <laughs> yes, I can relax, right? It's been six and a half years and I can relax. It's good. It's all good. And then the next night, you know, I'm watching the returns. It's very clear she's, you know, a- after a certain point that she's not going to make up the ground. And and uh, I, I just 
you know, I remember my um, my husband and I were on the couch watching the returns and 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 he's he and I just looked at each other and we were like, you know, right now, as bad as it's going to be like, I almost wish I could trade because I know how to fight those jackasses. But I but I don't think the country does, you know, like I'm willing to go to court again, you know, but I just don't know that the country does. And, and it really made me shift my thinking. And, um, I know at least since, you know, since he took office and all these things, you know, like the first two weeks with the whole signing a executive order every third minute. This continues. Yes, it does. But like, I just remember how shocked we all were, all of us, because we weren't expecting it to be that quick. And we weren't expecting the change that quickly. And it also triggered back to, you know, like how things were done to us where, you know, and all I can say is like the reason why I feel like I was able to overcome it um to a large part, like I don't, I feel like it's something I will live with forever and ever, but it's less and less every day is because of the art, you know, like I was flailing the first year, but I was also like frantically doing stuff for my husband and doing stuff for our family and trying to, you know, trying to get, you know, get our legal stuff lined up and our, you know, whatever. But then once that part was done, what, what, kept me calm was that I was going to take five minutes or whatever it was every day, a half an hour and find my art and post it. And, and all of the social media was actually used for good. You know, like people were holding me accountable, like, Hey, it's 1157. Where's your art? You know? Oh, right. You know? And then I'd go and shoot something and, um, figuratively, and then, um, you know, and post it. And so I feel like that really helps. I think in this turbulent time, and it is a turbulent time, and while I don't think it's going to go on forever and ever, and certainly not four years, I do feel like people are have some kind of burnout already. Mm-hmm. I, I know I do, right? And, um, and I just think like if we just make the time to do something like this for ourselves and make the art, even if it's just posting a picture, writing a couple lines of a poem, you know, drawing something, then you're you're actually taking back the time and you're taking back yourself and you're taking back you're ta- you're removing the political situation in Washington DC from your everyday life, you know. And 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 and, and I do think in this, especially in this time, you know, when, when people are really struggling with how to, how to do stuff and, and how to take time for themselves, if they could just remember to like, you know, read something for like five minutes that you just really enjoy and not just somebody's post about, you know, how messed up it is, but just like a poem, right? A poem is short and generally and um and there's some really great organizations like um the american academy of poets has their mm-hmm. has their poem a day stuff and you know just go on there that's what i do you know go on there read a poem and figure out what you're gonna do to contribute to the art that's out there you know and, and- well i mean it's it's interesting because i have been struggling my 
my movie script is really all about people trying to find meaning. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly there's a whole boatload of meaning um, that just wasn't there before. Like, it's like, oh, so now they've pulled, they've said that they're not going to, like, take census data about LGBT people. And so suddenly the continued commitment to representing your community in the world makes a very big difference. Even though it's a slapstick comedy that has, you know, it's not a coming of age. It's not, I've just discovered I'm gay. It's not like anything like that. Mm -hmm. But the opportunity to continue representing normal life. (laughs) Well, and also, I mean, I love that because the diverse cast like uh, ethnically, racially, and sexually, you know, and gender-wise diverse cast. Well, it's not that diverse. They're all sexy. <laughs> They're beautiful. They're really beautiful. But, um, you know, I just think that, that that representing that group as allies, you know, that's, that's the group we need to m- make a change. You know, we don't really need to convince the swing voter. We don't need to, you know, no. the, the kind of no. reluctant middle whatever middle of the road white person we just need the progressive you know alternative whatever communities to come together because we're actually the majority now (laughs) right right and and if you think about like one of the things that um that kind of gave me some hope um was in about uh i guess a, a couple of weeks after the election um uh one of these uh uh one of these sites put up um maps of the u.s and each map represented the age and gender of the voter, you know? Mm -hmm. So for example, all young people (laughs) voted blue. Right. So so we know that in the future, if they get the chance to vote again, they're going to vote blue. Right. And so it is going to be, this is the last gasp of the, you know, old Republic and the old Republican male. And, um, I mean, like, you know, this was the same data that was coming out after 2008 and the passage of uh, Prop 8. And um, it's just, I do hope that it's not just old white people who are going to die off and, you know, (laughs) reinvigorate our voting population, but also the people, you know, the young people who didn't vote, people who fell for whatever reason, like... Let's get over these. I mean, this is my little soapbox. Like, I'm sorry. How can we still be messing around with like access to voting and franchise? Right. That to me is like, what? Like, you don't believe in what you're talking about if you have to make it impossible for people to vote. And, and, and then, yeah. And then, but the good news is, is like, for example, in like states like Wisconsin and North Carolina, they got caught for their gerrymandering. And so I think in time for the next election, that will be corrected, you know? And so there's, there's progress. Right. And, and it's, and here's, here's the other thing. Like, I feel like if Hillary had won, we would all be talking about, oh, Lots of different things, right? We would be talking about maternity leave and, you know, parental leave. And we'd be talking about, you know, raising the minimum wage and free college tuition. But a lot of the problems that still exist, you know, would would not be discussed. And now we are discussing them. We are discussing them every day. And that's good because people need to know and people were being a little bit complacent 
And, um, you know, it's me making my little bit sarcasm sign. Yeah. <laughs> now, speaking of the election, it is time for Steal This. Okay. <laughs> our, our last, our final episode, just because we all have to run off and pick children up. Yes. So, um, amateur poets borrow, said T.S. Eliot, professional poets steal. Uh, what have you come across in your wanderings and readings that you would like to? or whatever that you'd like to take and make your own. But well, um, I have to say uh, the thing that I'm stealing from these days um, is uh, Citizen by Claudia Rankin. Um, it is this fantastic book that won several prizes in both poetry and nonfiction. Mm. Um, and it talks about race in America and um, in this very interesting way. And it's in second person. And that part I can't steal because I, I just don't do that well. But um, but what I really liked about it was um, how uh, she used these very short pieces to convey so much. And, um, and so my novel uh, that I'm finishing up right now really follows, I've really stolen from citizen in terms of its structure and it's um and um some of its you know uh content in the uh in the ideas about uh race relations and also um what it means to be in exile in your own country yeah yeah wonderful um and you want to throw one in uh I can go first. Yes. I'll just say, because I'm, I'm reading The Likeness by Tana French. And um, have you read that one, Debbie? The second? No, I haven't yet. It's, it's so good. Anyway, um, it's actually, I think, I was telling Angie, I think it's really, it, it's got this aspect of the secret history by Donna Tartt in it. In yeah. this way, where, I mean, I keep thinking of that because there are this, this sort of tight-knit group of friends who are a little, uh, sort of, they're, inexplicably tight and a little strange and and under suspicion and yet kind of wonderful and magical and i've been thinking about how i mean i don't know whether she was wildly inspired by the secret history although i wouldn't be surprised at all right right and um but what it's making me think of is how you could take something you love um, like an element like that, like that group of friends and say, what if, what if a group of friends like that lived here? And what if this happened? And what if, I mean, it feels like she did that, whether she actually did or not. And, mm -hmm. and it's just something I haven't quite thought of because it's not in any way actually pointing to the secret history. And there's, you know, and it's not, it's not quite kind of an illusion exactly, but it's just taking the things that are wonderful about some elements of that friend group and then kind of importing it into this Irish <laughs> murder mystery. And I just thought, you know, so it's kind of, a, it's kind of just, I guess, permission to steal, you know, even like a whole sort of cast of characters almost and then morph them and they'll just more, they're going to just morph and morph and morph until they're your own, you know? Right, 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 right. That's great. What about <laughs> you, Angie? Well, uh, upon reflection, um, <laughs> I'm you know, also on the board of my children's school, and we just had a meeting about campus development and sort of looking at how we want to plan it. And one of the pieces that the person who is leading it um, talked about was finding the people who are the naysayers, the people who are going to really just gum up the process and to bring them in. And I realized that for myself, I have a lot of voices in my head telling me about competing for like how it is you can do this. So um, I've been struggling a lot, you know, a lot of people telling me, oh, you can't shoot your film that way. You can't, 
uh, cast it that way. You can't have eight people as the main cast. You can't do that. And, um, you know, and so I've been really, I think, struggling in part because... I didn't feel confident in my own choices, but I think that bringing those voices sort of closer in a way, I can understand more what they're trying to achieve Mm -hmm. and then to tailor my process to do that. (laughs) Um, Does that make sense? Yeah, it absolutely does. Before we let you go, Debbie, um, just tell people where to find your, your book and, and your, and you in the public world. Oh, right. So, um, uh, my book was put out uh, by Finishing Line Press, so they have a website. You can definitely order from them. But I am also part of the Ingram Book Group, and so my book is also on um, Amazon. So that's probably easier for everyone. Um, we'll, put, we'll put both links up in the show notes. Okay, because I'm the one who puts the links yeah, up. We, by we, I mean Angie. <laughs> Just like we put four versions. <laughs> And then, um, and then the other thing is, um, I have a website and, um, uh, it's, uh, Debbie S and, uh, and I also have a website for all, all the stuff that happened to our family and it's joy And, um, and so, yeah, you're welcome to peruse there. I have some of my poems that were published in journals up on the website. And, um, and also, uh, we have a couple of, I have a couple of essays that I wrote, uh, regarding my family situation that's on the website I created for my husband. Oh, wonderful. We will put links to all of that in the show notes. Thank you so much for coming and talking with us. Yeah, thank Delightful. you. It was such a pleasure. Cool. Good again to see with you. The next book. And I have to say, the thing about moving from the South is I got to know you better because I would not have known you as well. That's very true. That's very so true. I'm grateful for that. You no, know, I have to say that it's lovely here in California <laughs> and we have finally gotten used to it and it's just lovely and um, except for the rain, which has now disappeared from where I live, at least. So <laughs> I'm very delighted to be here. Oh, well, we're happy to have you. <laughs> <laughs> All right.